Have you ever heard of the Van Dykes? No relation to Dick Van Dyke. But this was a group of lesbians living out of vans. (laughs) And hence the Van Dyke situation. That was Lamar. Full name? Lamar Van Dyke. My pronoun is she, although I don't really care. She legally changed her name about 30 years ago. You could say Lamar was the first of the Van Dykes. It all started in the mid-70s. She was living in Toronto, and one of her friends had just returned from a road trip of her own. And when she came back from traveling, she was all relaxed and cute and wearing overalls and didn't give a shit about her hair. And, you know, she had, like, transformed into some fabulous person. So when that same friend invited Lamar to head out on the road, she jumped at the opportunity. So we took off in her Volkswagen van, went a big loop around the continent, (laughs) essentially. And by the time we got um, back, I actually really liked the lifestyle, but I wanted my own space. So she bought a van for herself and thought, why not invite more women? We could just go off into Lesbiana and just leave all this shit behind us. Let's just go. And so I collected other women that were interested and we left we left two vans left toronto and one van left vancouver the plan was to meet on the steps of city hall in san antonio texas and uh, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have you know instant communication of any kind it's like you just said okay in a month and a half we're going to meet in this spot and you go to that spot and then you wait and see what's going to happen So on the day they were supposed to meet, Lamar had no way of knowing if the other groups had made it. My van got to that spot, and we sat there. And then a van came in. And then the Vancouver van came in. And then some unidentified van came in. Like, well, who's that? Somebody picked somebody up in New York City, and now we have another van. No. It was like that. And then off we went. We went into Mexico and we we totally cruised around for like a year. They ended up with four vans total, traveling the entire continent of North America. But where is a group like that supposed to stay in the 1970s? Surely it wasn't safe or legal to spend nights on the street or in empty lots. Well, there were these uh, encampments all around the country. Women were doing this everywhere. They were going out into rural areas and setting up spaces where they welcomed traveling women. But it was women-only land. There were only women on the land. The concept of women's land was popular across the U.S. throughout the 70s and 80s. Basically, groups of women, often lesbians, would buy plots of land and try to live there self-sufficiently. By the 70s, a lot of women were trying to conceive of what would life without men be like. This is Ruth Pettis from the Northwest Lesbian and Gay History Museum Project. What would women-run life be like if you had, you know, a group of people living collectively 
how would you apply feminist values to that? So these are all experiments, really, in how to do that. So there was a lot of idealism mixed in with the practicalities of, well, if you're going to raise your own food, how do you do that? And how do you do it sustainably? And if you're going to keep, you know, a cash flow coming in so you can pay your taxes, how do you do that? So they were struggling with all these issues. Ruth herself spent some time on women's land outside of a small town in Oregon. So it would have been around 77 and 78 when it was it was in progress. And it was a group of people who had um, bought some land and they had little cabins on it. But let's get back to Lamar. The Van Dykes would travel between plots of women's land. The West Coast was like full of it. The East Coast, we had to really search hard. But it was there and we found it. Remember, this was before the internet or cell phones. So finding women's land was a little more complicated than a quick Google search. There was this publication called The Lesbian Connection. The Lesbian Connection had a list of contact dykes in various cities in America. So we could go to Minneapolis and look at the contact dykes and call them up and say, we're here with four vans, you know, do you know a good place where we could park? And we would get information. There was this whole underground kind of world that you could move around in very easily. And lots of lots of women were moving around in that world. A day in the life of the Van Dykes sounds somewhat dreamy. Okay, so we're in Mexico. Say, say we moved into Mexico. So we would find some beautiful spot. We would camp there. We would go to the market and see what all the food was about and buy some stuff and bring it back and cook it. We, you know, I had a kitchen in my van. I had a step van. I could walk around in it. Everybody else's vans were short. So I actually had a nice little propane kitchen thing going on. So we would go and find that and cook ourselves some food. And we were like radical food people. You know, we didn't eat uh, anything. The group made minimal income silk screening and selling t-shirts. But they didn't need much to survive. We lived on water and air, and we shaved our heads. And we were just saying, f*** you. We were just saying, f*** you, to everything that we had ever been taught. And for fun? Yeah, we would hang out. We'd smoke pot sometimes if we could find it. And you know, we'd take chairs out of the vans and set them all up and sit around. And Oh, we'd go to the lesbian bars. We would go into town and go to the lesbian bars. And that was always fun. And the lesbian bars were listed in the lesbian connection. So we would go in the lesbian bars and drink and dance and meet women and, you know, invite them to come to our campsite. And they would. And we'd meet everybody that was around. And you know, hang out, and then we move on. For Lamar, her traveling companions, and many others at the time, Women's Land offered a chance to live outside of patriarchal and capitalist structures. And like Lamar said, it was really common for lesbians to own women's land, visit there, or live there. Take Briar Herrick, one of the original owners of The Wild Rose, a lesbian bar in Seattle. In the 1970s, she went in on about 20 acres outside of Seattle. We were just just young and a bunch of dykes having a good time. 
um, wanting to learn how to build things, wanting to see if we could grow things, wanting to see if we could create a different kind of both um, collective thinking, decision-making, and, and play. Breyer spent about a year living on the land, during a break from her job in the city. We built platforms, and then we put tents on the platforms, and we put wood stoves inside the tents. But it wasn't always easy. It was harsh. You know, we were, <laughs> we had no electricity. Um, we had no wa- running water. We, we had a creek, so we boiled that water. Um, I had a, we had, we had no money, right? You know, I remember one night, it was so cold that I had heated rocks and I had them in my sleeping bag. And of course they caught fire and the, <laughs> it was just a terrible situation. <laughs> but I came out of it okay. Fryer and Lamar didn't cross paths in their days living on women's land. But they would soon meet at the Wild Rose. Because after a few years on the road, Lamar landed in Seattle in 1980. My van broke down. I was in my van, which was my house. I I mean, I had been in it, and it broke down in Seattle, and it would not be fixed. It would not. Every dike mechanic in town worked on it. I took it to the dealership. It, it was supposedly fixed 20 times, and every time I would get in it, and I would get four blocks, and it would just stop. Seattle, it seemed, did not want Lamar to leave. So eventually, I had to just give up and, you know, get a job. Like, I had to get a job, and I had to like, get some money, and I had to, like, have a real life because... I had to get my van fixed because I was just passing through. Or so she thought. But I was not passing (laughs) through. I am still here. It was the best place ever for me to be. It all worked out. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S., My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number eight, The Wild Rose. The year was 1984, Seattle. Seattle in the 70s and 80s was just blooming with lesbian <laughs> community. There was the Lesbian Resource Center, there was a lesbian medical uh, health care, there was It's About Time bookstore, there was Red and Black bookstore, there was the Coffee Coven, there were a lot of, of gay bars, there were a lot of dance clubs. That was Briar again, one of the original owners of The Wild Rose. I later asked historian Ruth Pettis how all of this came to be. Well, it was part of a general migration that was happening in the 70s. There had always been um, a radical presence here in the in the Pacific Northwest, and especially in Seattle. That's why Seattle became known as a hotbed. It was not just for gay issues as well, but this was in a context of a lot of progressive um, thinkers being here. So there were a lot of resources in the area for queer people to seek aid, counseling, or even just community. And starting in the early 1970s, news of that seemed to spread through word of mouth. Now, there were radical groups that had put out the um, word that Seattle was going to be the site of where the revolution breaks out. I mean, this was a far leftist type of position. If you, you were in certain circles, you would hear this buzz going on. 
but it wasn't necessarily something that was being proclaimed in newspaper headlines or anything like that. Ruth remembers the first time she heard about the prospect of migrating to Seattle. She had run into an old friend from college. And I asked her, how, how, how was the gang? How, what have you heard? And she says, oh, they're all going out to Seattle. They're all working in the, the women's health clinics and that kind of thing. The buzz around Seattle is interesting because there were certainly similar resources in other major coastal cities. What was um, different about Seattle and maybe for the West Coast in general was that the bars, the gay bars, were owned by gay people for the most part. And in, in places like New York and Boston, you had to go to some place where it was always rumored that it was mafia run. So, and I don't know to the extent of that, the truth of that, but it was a sense of we you know, had our public spaces at the behest of some other group of people who, you know, ran it for, for profit. We've all heard that trope of Stonewall and the mafia and the jacked up drink prices. But in Seattle... Well, the bars were certainly here were certainly run for profit. It was also by people who were often from the community. And bars have always been, and continue to be, important in forming community. You could certainly do that through working with the Lesbian Resource Center or Take Back the Night or all of these different political or social organizations. This is Breyer again. But a bar is where people are a little bit looser. Uh, they're cruising. Um, it's a a place to be comfortable in a in a, another kind of way. And I, I think they're really important places. And so that's why, around this time in 1984, Breyer decided to open a lesbian bar of her own. She would do it with four other women. We kind of all knew each other. Three of the women were into organic food uh, and food distri- distribution. I was either running the equipment or running down, working downtown as a consultant, something. And we all were, had long time been bar people. And most importantly, they shared a vision for a bar that would be unlike the other LGBTQ spots in Seattle. We decided we wanted to, to get a bar open again that was light, had food, and we would be proud to take our parents or our family there. If they could deal with us, we would create a place that we thought they might like as well. So it was it was a goal to be a little bit more inclusive, to not be in a dark alley, and to serve food and be open to the public. Eventually, they found the perfect venue, the ground floor of a three-story building at the corner of East Pike Street and 11th Ave, with big windows and plenty of natural light. We were all looking all the time for about two years. We probably visited 15 different places. But this one, because of its location, because it was close to the men's bars that we knew, um, I'm trying to remember if Lamar had her tattoo shop. Because of the- Remember Lamar? She did have a tattoo shop at the time. That's where she'd ended up, right next door to the Wild Rose. And then a friend came into my shop and said, what would you think? If we bought the bar next door, I said, I would think I had died and gone to heaven. Are you buying the bar next door? And she said, yeah, there's a group of us and we're going to buy that bar and it's going to be a lesbian bar. And they did. The five women essentially crowdfunded the money they needed to rent the space. We we had to find money. We each had to find like $10,000. And so most everybody went to friends and borrowed a thousand here, a thousand there, a thousand here, a thousand there, until they had their 10,000 together. And in doing so, 
word started to get out about their soon-to-be lesbian bar. All of these women, <laughs> right there, you've got 30 women who we probably owe a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks to. So they all knew about it. They invited their friends, and the word just spread. Like I mentioned, the lesbian network in Seattle at the time was vast. There were just a, a hundred lesbian groups and women's groups just swirling around Seattle. Um, and then the Seattle Gay News uh, was a fabulous newspaper in Seattle for probably 30 years. And they wrote a lot of stories about us. The bar launched with a New Year's Eve party ringing in 1985. Ownership transferred as of midnight that night. And they just said, hey, you can take it over. I mean, it was kind of a last minute thing, but why don't you just take New Year's Eve? Why don't you make your grand opening New Year's Eve? For some reason, the previous bar wanted to help with the opening, but they didn't have that much time to prepare. Luckily, the bar was pretty well stocked. Um, So we were able, and we had some of their staff helping us figure out all the things that we needed to know. We had their cooks We had um, one of their bartenders, but the five of us really (laughs) stepped up and took over the bar, even though we didn't know a lot about what we were doing, but we really had fun. And despite not knowing much about running a bar, they did know how to throw a party. That's according to Lamar. I went over before they were open and they were like polishing the bar and they had on, uh, all of them had on black pants and white shirts and black vests and pink bow ties. Oh, they had cummerbunds, too. They had pink cummerbunds. And they had painted the underneath of the bar pink. And they had, like, tablecloths on the tables and little candles. I mean, it was completely the opposite of what it had been. They transformed it. No one knew who would show up, if anyone at all. But as it turns out, word of mouth had spread. Fast. I came back like an hour and a half later and they were, their bow ties were like sideways, their cummerbunds were twisted, they were going a hundred miles an hour, the place was packed and they were just like on automatic pilot, just going behind the bar. It was fantastic. I'll never forget that first night, the five of us. We didn't even know how to change a keg, let alone get the cash register to work. But we had a line around around the block. It was We had probably 300 people there, and it was a blast. After that first night, the five owners fell into more established roles. Devi did the, the cooking and managing the kitchen uh, and doing the ordering, her and Uli, and then Sylvia was doing the bookkeeping. And my job was to work downtown (laughs) and make enough money to keep the bar open (laughs) and pay the bills as much as I could. Um, And then I worked a couple nights a week. But even with Breyer's salary, they still weren't making enough to stay afloat. We weren't really business people. We hadn't been paying our taxes. There was um, an incredible amount of debt that got built up that uh, we weren't aware of and that we didn't pay attention to. Um, And we were... We were going to have to close the doors. So after the first year, Briar took out a loan and bought everyone out. I love my, my partners. Don't get me wrong. And we, we were a great team creating that place. But at some point, somebody had to take control and watch the budget and 
make sure that we weren't overspending and try to pay down the debt and just be in charge. And we, our, our collective didn't have those skills. And so when it came right down to it, I said, either I buy you guys out or you buy me out, but this, this isn't working. I don't, I don't want to be in debt like this. And all of them said, Hey, we we're out of here. We wanted the place to succeed. We wanted that place to work for the Seattle community. And it did. Briars had a fondness for bars since her childhood in rural Montana. We were rancher farmers, but my dad was always in the bar in the afternoon and the winters, and we'd go up and hang out. And um, I've just gravitated towards bars. I like hanging out at a bar. Growing up, she always resisted traditional gender roles. I couldn't stand working in the house very much. I wanted to always be out in the field with my brothers. Although, of course, what it meant at that time was you work out in the field with your brothers and then you come in and you make sure that the meals are cooked and the cleanup is done and then, you know, you do both. She was also an avid reader. There was a library about 20 miles away and there was a bus that took us there once every two weeks. And I just grabbed as many books as I could. Somewhere in her reading, she stumbled upon the term bisexual, and she latched onto it, although she wasn't quite clear on its meaning. Oh, God, I was driving tractor, and I must have been in the fourth or fifth grade. So I'm out working in the field one day, and I, and I think to myself, oh, I'm bisexual. That must mean I'm half man, half woman, because I do... All the work outside that the men do, and I do all the work inside that the women do. So that must be (laughs) what that means. By high school, Breyer had a better understanding of her own sexuality. Her best friend at the time was one of her cousins. He was also gay. And so there is the tomboy and the the faggot, (laughs) and we... We ended up going to all the dances together, and we we had a pretty good time together. Her cousin was openly gay, and that made life really hard for him. He would get beat up a lot. Uh, he would go try to pick people up under bridges down in Missoula, and he'd end up in jail. And so he started drinking at an early age, and ultimately it killed him. But um, he made high school a little bit bearable for me. But watching her cousin struggle made her afraid to come out herself. I could see the the pain and suffering that he was going through. So it was pretty clear to me, I need to get out of Montana. He needed to get out of Montana. And we needed to find places that felt good. Breyer soon made it out of Montana. But her cousin never did. When he died, I was in Seattle. I had been trying to get him to Seattle. I had I told him I'd get him an apartment because I was running the rows. I knew all the gay bars. I knew all the guys. We could have done anything. I mean, I could have got him. I said, I can get you a job in a gay bar. I can get you an apartment, everything. And he just, um, he just wouldn't leave. But there were many years in between high school and his tragic death. Many years of Briar trying to pull him out of the nest as she had started to soar. After finishing her undergrad at Carroll College, Breyer finally left Montana for law school in D.C. It was the 70s. The women's movement was in full swing, especially in D.C. Free ourselves! Free ourselves! Free ourselves! 
and Breyer joined the movement to work with the National Women's Political Caucus. I knew Bella Absig and Gloria and, you know, um, Shirley Chisholm came into the office. And yes, that's Gloria as in Gloria Steinem. <laughs> I was in meetings with them where she'd yell at me. They were, they were like the board and we were the workers. And so they'd come in, give us orders. We'd have our marching orders. You know, we'd fail miserably because the times weren't ready for us yet. <laughs> we did our best. <laughs> Breyer eventually moved to Seattle to be part of that rich lesbian community we keep hearing about. And she realized almost immediately she'd found her people. I had headed over to the Lesbian Resource Center and there was a meeting going on at the university for something. It was like I had walked into a room where I was comfortable in a way that I don't know that I had ever been comfortable. It was women who looked like me. There was no makeup. There were jean jackets and cowboy boots and kerchiefs around your neck and smart and thinking women of color. And I went, oh, this is where I belong. This is where I belong. I have just found my people. So Breyer settled down there. At this point, she was a working lawyer. And it was in Seattle that she started working on the biggest court case of her career. I had been working with the ACLU and the Lawyers Guild. And they asked me to work with them on the first lesbian mother's case that we won. Uh, we won at trial level. We won at the Supreme Court of Washington level. So it was the first successful lesbian mother's case in the country. The case Breyer's talking about is Supreme Court case Schuster v. Schuster. It revolved around the custody battles of two lesbian mothers, Sandy Schuster and Madeline Isaacson. Breyer was part of the legal team representing them. It was a case of two women, uh, both married to different men. One of them had four children and one of them had three, I think. And very, very religious, uh, very kind of um, evangelical kind of religious. And then the women fell in love. And tried to get custody of the children. And the men, of course, just immediately um, made it an issue of, of lesbians are unfit parents. The, the wonderful thing is these were not unfit women, parents. They were fabulous. They were good parents. And um, we were able to prove that at trial. Initially, the mothers were granted custody of their respective children, but ordered to live separately. Their husbands then appealed, claiming that while the women maintained separate apartments in the same building, they were in fact living together. We put together experts from all over the country, and it was probably a three-week trial. Um, the attorney for the other side was a man named Clay Dixon. He always wore white, everything white, a three-piece suit, white hat with a pink um, carnation, and always had a Bible always carried a Bible. And I remember the day of the first trial, he came up to me and he said, I understand you're, you're the lesbian on the t legal team. Well, I'm going to get you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, shit, man, I don't know what that means. He never got me, but um, <laughs> it was just an intimidation tactic, and it, it didn't work. And as Breyer said, the women won. They maintained custody of their children and were allowed to live together. It changed everything. It changed everything. It's still a case that's quoted. It's still probably the most important lesbian mother case ever. And the Supreme Court of, of Washington su supported the view that um, 
You had to look at the best interests of the child. You always have to look at the best interests of the child. The case was groundbreaking in that it affirmed that a lesbian family could be a perfectly healthy environment in which to raise children. And you could not use homosexuality as the basis for best interest. You, you, you couldn't do that anymore. You had to look at what was actually in the best interest of the child. And as for Breyer, she continued to build a successful law career, all the while running The Wild Rose. She also ended up managing the Wild Rose building for the owner, Jim. When Jim decided to sell the building around 1995, he went to Briar. I talked to Jim about it, and he said, why don't you just buy the building from me? So I ended up buying the building. But then, in 2000, Briar had to leave the Wild Rose and Seattle altogether. It was a family emergency. I had a twin brother, um, and he was severely um, uh, disabled. When we were five years old, my parents had him institutionalized, and I would visit him every year and work with people, et cetera. And then I got the call in about in 2000 that he was dying. Briar and her brother George had been two out of nine kids in their family. There were two older, older brother, older sister, and then Georgie and I, and then um, five kids underneath, younger. And by the time he was five, we were five, there were, my folks had what, three, four other kids, younger. And it was pretty chaotic. And he was running away all the time. And I was running away with him because we thought it was really funny to hide in ditches and watch them yell. Georgie and Briar were born in 1947. At the time, it was all too common to institutionalize children with disabilities. But their parents didn't make the decision lightly. It scared them for me, I think. As I read the old letters, it scared them for the rest of the kids. Um, And so the church said, you need to take care of the kids you have that you can help. And they really pushed them to have him institutionalized. It was what people did back then. And I am so sorry they had to make that decision for themselves and for the rest of us. At first, the family visited Georgie often. It was really hard on us kids because we didn't want to leave him. And finally, the folks just couldn't couldn't deal with it. I think their own emotions and ours, and they just said, you have to forget you have a brother. Breyer later discovered the horrifying details of Georgie's life at the institution. It was, I mean, I have all the records. I have studied his life. Um, and it was... Um, it was brutal. I mean, I, he, he had a lot of electroshocks. He was in um, straitjackets a lot. He was drugged, uh, massively drugged. So as an adult living in Seattle, Breyer pushed her parents to make her George's legal guardian. Technically, he still belonged to the state, but Breyer became the point person for his care. I asked my folks, I said, I, w- I want to do that. Um, just in case anything happens to you that there's some continuity to Georgie's um, caretaking. And they said, you bet. So and then, then I became more involved in his life. I became talking to his doctors. I was still in Seattle living this great lesbian life, right? I'm just having a blast over there. Um, and never wanted to come back to Montana, primarily because it was so closeted when I was a kid. But then she got that phone call, the one that informed her. Georgie was dying. I needed to come back here and, and see how Georgie was doing. And so I, I came back for six months, 
And during that time, he, he kind of blossomed and we were able to work with his doctors. And I took him for rides every day and I just got to know him. So six months passed, then a year. Briar got Georgie into a group home and he lived 15 more years with his sister by his side. He, he never spoke. He, he never talked. But, I mean, he started laughing, um, eating more, laughing, um, just seemed to enjoy life. You know, it, it was hard to know because he, not having any language at all and being pretty withdrawn um, made it hard, always hard to know exactly what was going on with him. But... I would sing and he would laugh and I would feed him lots of, you know, I, I would just try to do the most exotic things I could. His, one of his favorite was was plain yogurt with maple syrup and whipped cream. And that was just like heaven. <laughs> in that time, Briar came to peace with living in Montana again. I couldn't leave him. So it was just finding a life that worked for me here. And um, I found a great life. It's been about six years since Georgie passed. But Briar never returned to Seattle. She found a lesbian community in Montana, bought a building, started working with the Montana Artists' Refuge, and became the mediator for the Montana Human Rights Department. And then Briar met her partner, Melissa. She's a poet. She's actually, well, her term as Montana's uh, Poet Laureate just ended. She did a reading here at the, at the coffee shop, and then she was part of the Montana Artists' Refuge as well. Back in Seattle, Briar had left the Wild Rose in the hands of the current owners, Martha and Shelley. We met them the Hi. night we visited the bar. How are you? Good, how you doing? I'm Shelley. Martha's on her way out of the kitchen. Awesome, good. Thanks <laughs> uh, for you meeting us. Do you have your Vax card? Yes, yeah, we, we do. And then we're good to go. Awesome. As it turns out, Jen and Martha had something in common. I just grew up on the East Coast in a little town, a little beach town, Narragansett, um, what? That's what really? I'm wow. I am from wow. Okay, this yeah. might not seem like a big deal, but Narragansett is like really, really small. It's, a, it's the tiniest little oh, town yeah. in the tiny, in the smallest state, and yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. When Martha moved to Seattle in the late '90s, there were two lesbian bars in town: the Wild Rose and the Easy. Martha applied to both and was actually hired at both bars on the same day. And I thought that was great. And I thought, oh, I'll just work at both. But um, that wasn't that wasn't okay with Joanne. Yeah, she didn't she didn't want to have um, people work at the other lesbian bar. Joanne was another previous owner after Briar and before Martha and Shelley. You know, because uh, she asked about my availability, and I said, well, they they um, offered me a job at the at the Easy, and she said, well, you. You can't work both places. You you can if you work there. You can't work here. And I had I had already accepted. I said, well, I I accepted here, so that I'll I'll just tell them I can't. So I just I stayed here. And I yeah. So I imagine things would be really different in my life if I had chosen the the easy instead, um, which is a great place. But yeah, I guess not my place. Shelley, the other co-owner, was just a patron when she started helping out with tech at the bar. I would help out with rewiring stuff, or I had a lot of technical theater backgrounds. So when they do shows, someone would grab me and make me do something <laughs> for them. And then uh, 
And then I started doing sound when they had bands and stuff. It wasn't really paid. It was just sort of like helping out, you know. Before Wild Rose, Shelley had a truly impressive career in engineering. As she mentioned, she has a background in technical theater. But then, in the 1980s, she ended up working as an aerospace engineer on projects like... Um, space shuttle... F-18 aircraft, F-16 aircraft, commercial aircraft, primarily radar systems and sensors, a couple bombs. (laughs) Shelly has been full-time at the bar since about 2009, and she still fills all of their technical needs. Yeah, I take care of a lot of the um, mechanical things around here. I do the layout for the beer garden for our block party take care of all the sound equipment. I'm also a sound engineer. So. Shelly and Martha both pretty much do everything around the bar. We, we do multiple jobs each. Oh, uh, that's a necessity. We, Shelly does the door. I do, I bartend because that's always been kind of the business model that we do the shifts. And I only live a couple miles away, so I usually run by every day, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm not in every, some of the weekdays. I'm not, but we we could be just for cleaning and because um, we're also the cleaning crew and so yeah. um, stuff like that. And then shopping, the Shelley's kind of shopping <laughs> all the time. We're sort of all the crew, right? Now. Yeah. The Wild Rose has always had a small staff, but for most of the pandemic, it was just Martha, Shelley, and Martha's wife, Katie. You don't even feel good offering someone a job like that. They don't know yeah. if anyone's going to come through the door. They don't. You know, you're exposing yourself in the middle of a pandemic. They've brought a couple more people on since then. So now it's a whopping six-person staff. When we visited, Martha was behind the bar while Shelley worked the door. And uh, please keep your mask on unless you are sitting at the table. We brought our drinks to their outdoor patio along the street. And midway through our evening two protesters showed up on the corner with a speaker, a microphone, and a large sign that read, Ask me why you deserve to burn in hell. On Judgment Day, you're not going to hide any sin. All your sins are going to be exposed at the end of the day. Needless to say, we did not ask them. But I did ask Shelly about them. They've been showing up every Friday and Saturday for about a month. We had a dance. <laughs> Mickey from Betty Rosso set up her sound system to counteract them. And then she just blasted dance music. That's so funny. So everybody just started dancing around them, and then they got, then they packed up and left. <laughs> and you said they got beat up down there? <laughs> yeah, they got all their stuff thrown around, and they got, I think, I think he got beat up, and then... They were up there one day, up on 11th, just like 20 feet into the into the street. And there's a guy that's called the Snake Man, and he has this huge boa that he walks around with, I guess. And I have I've seen him like once, but he was chasing him around, and he was running around going, "I hate snakes! I hate snakes!" <laughs> From her perch at the top of their steps, Shelley has watched the block change over the past couple decades. Capitol Hill is no longer the radical neighborhood of the 70s and 80s. It's been gentrified. This used to be sort of the gritty part of town. And now there's, you know, 
million dollar condos across the street and stuff. The area is now home to hip bars, shops, and restaurants. That corner now is a very um, vibrant corner on a Friday and Saturday night. It's, it's packed with people. If you try to drive through it, you will have to go very, very slowly because there are people crossing the streets from one bar to the other. So that's what it's like now. Lamar and Breyer both told me they think the Wild Rose is responsible for drawing other queer businesses into that particular area. And according to Breyer, that's part of the problem. That building really became a center for for Seattle lesbians. We, believe it or not, this lesbian bar kind of helped gentrify the neighborhood, <laughs> for better or for worse. I mean, if you call a lot of gay businesses gentrification, but of course... I do. I mean, that was the Lamar shop, the leather shop. They were they were fabulous businesses. And while Capitol Hill is still known for its LGBTQ bars and clubs, we didn't get to experience the lesbian hub it once was. I can only imagine the former bliss of the lesbians owning the streets, as detailed by Lamar. You know, we had our bikes there. All these women had bikes. They parked their bikes in front of the Wild Rose. They parked their bikes around the corner. They parked their bikes on the sidewalk in front of my shop. And go into the Wild Rose. The Wild Rose became a huge part of Lamar's life. She found herself popping into the bar every day, multiple times a day. I was going in and getting coffee and seeing who's there and, you know, just talking with whoever, just chatting it up, getting out of my shop for a few minutes, getting a change of scenery, having a beer, going back. Sometimes you just got to get out of there. So I would get out of there and I would go hang out next door for a while and then I'd go back. Lamar has always been a visual artist, so that's why it seemed like a good idea to get into tattoos. Well, I come from a really solid working class background, so that doesn't necessarily include galleries and agents and, you know, that wasn't part of my reality at all. But tattoos, I could put art on people. That was pretty direct. Somebody would come in, hand me money. I would put art on people and we're all happy. So it was a good way for me to make a life for myself in Seattle. She first started painting at five years old. When I was very young, I had uh, an illness that had me in bed for a year. Lamar's mother had to find a way to keep a five-year-old in bed for an entire year. And this was not an easy thing to do. First, she put my bed in the dining room, right in the middle of the house. Perfect. Then she she was learning to oil paint. And she wanted me to shut up and, uh, let her paint. So she got me, and I'm five, she gets me a paint-by-numbers set and shows me how it goes. And then we'd sit there. I would sit there in my little bed, and she would sit there, and we would paint. And then we had peace. And then I asked her if I really had to follow the numbers, and she said no. So then I just started doing that. Throughout her childhood, Lamar's mom also taught her never to rely on men. Like, I had a stepfather, and, you know, there were men around. But basically what it seemed you did with them was you put more food on their plate than you put on anybody else's plate. And you didn't really tell them the truth about much. Like, you didn't exactly lie, but you didn't, like, inform them. You didn't clearly inform them. Like, she just kind of had this. I grew up in this atmosphere where, yes, there was this guy, but he was kind of stupid. (laughs) And we had our own little world that was working just fine. And we sort of did whatever with him. And then we just carried on. I kind of grew up that way. So I just stayed that way, really. So when Lamar became interested in tattoos, 
she searched for a female to teach her. I very early on ran out of patience with men. It, you know, they're like the lowest common denominator. And it takes a lot to just be there with that and put up with that and, you know, deal with that. And I was just, I was done with it. This was while she was still living out of her van and traveling the country. But female tattoo artists proved difficult to find. Whenever we got somewhere, I would go find the tattoo shop and try to find a woman who was tattooing who would take me on and teach me how to do it. And I would find the tattoo shops that would have a woman there, but the woman inevitably would be married to whoever owned the shop. And she had no power or control, and I knew it wasn't going to work, that I, was, I, was, I wasn't going to learn anything there. I was just going to go there and get mad and, you know. Then, when her van broke down in Seattle, she finally found the mentor she'd been looking for. Her name is Madame Lazonga. An independent woman who had her own shop and who was a brilliant artist, fantastic artist. And I went there and I sat in her shop. And for the first time in my life, I actually became speechless. I sat there and looked at all of her art while she was working on somebody. And then she came and she said, can I help you? And I, I couldn't talk. I, I was just like, Oh, my God, you know, she was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And her art was so beautiful. I was just overwhelmed. So when I finally opened my mouth, I said, I'll do anything. I'll wash your floors. I'll cook your meals. I'll do anything. But please teach me to tattoo. (laughs) And she said, I just opened the shop. I can't take that on right now. So instead, Lamar found a way to observe her tattooing anyway. She would design tattoos for her friends and then go with them to Lazonga's shop to get it done. So we're there and she's putting my tattoo on my friend and I'm watching the whole thing and I'm just watching it like, okay, this doesn't look that complex. I mean, there's things to learn, but basically people have been tattooing each other for thousands and thousands of years. How hard can it be? Lamar thought she was ready to get started on her own. And her friends volunteered to be the canvases. So I sent away in the back of a motorcycle magazine and got myself, you know, Tattoo 101 kit, which now when I look at it, it's hysterical. But at the time, it was, you know, fantastic. When Lamar eventually ran out of ink, she approached another local tattoo artist for supplies. There was a gay man in town who did have a tattoo shop. And he said, no, he would not sell me anything unless he could see what I was doing because he didn't want to be contributing to some scratcher out there. So I sent in, like, a fashion show (laughs) of tattoos. I mean, everybody just went in at different times. Lamar didn't have a portfolio, but she did have her friends, who had now been tatted by her. So they all stopped by this guy's studio, one by one, to give him a look. And then he uh, called me and asked me if I wanted to be an apprentice. And I said, no, I didn't want to be an apprentice because clearly I was already tattooing and making money. So no. He said, oh, well, then do you want a job? And I said, yeah. When his shop moved, Lamar opened her own around 1984. And shortly after it opened, who walks in the door? Madame Lazonga herself. At this point, her and Lamar were good friends. And so she came back. And came into my shop and asked me if she could work in my shop. 
And, you know, the true answer was, and I said to her, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I just opened this shop and I cannot take you on. We just stood there and looked at each other like, right. She's like, right. Because I had, I had just opened it. If I had Madame Lozanga working in my shop, I would not have existed. I mean, she's big. So, and I was just starting. So, you know, we couldn't do it. After 18 years, Lamar's tattoo shop was one of many businesses in the area to fall victim to gentrification. Someone new bought the building and she decided to double my rent, which sort of pissed me off. And in order to do that, I was going to have to like go back to working, like seriously working, getting up and going to work. And, you know, I was going to have to get into it like that. And I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. I felt like I had done that for a long time. But she'd never intended to do the same thing for that long anyway. Because I didn't really know. I was just doing it. So I looked under the counter and I found my stack of business licenses. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been doing this for 18 years. Like, I never thought I was the kind of person that would do anything the same thing for 18 years. That was shocking to me. So Lamar sold the shop to a trusted coworker and moved on. The Wild Rose likely would have had the same fate, if not for Briar. When she moved back to Montana back in 2000, she had to sell the building. But Briar did her best to make sure the bar would be able to survive. The one thing that, that I did before I sold it was go to the Rose and then the women's hothouse downstairs were good friends of mine. So we were all trying to make sure that they had good leases with good terms that, you know, would, would keep them in that building for as long as they wanted to be. And, of course, that was 20 years ago, and some of them are still there and some aren't. But, um, yeah, that was really important to me because we were community. We were family. And today, Martha and Shelley are sure this is the reason the Wild Rose has been able to keep its doors open, especially because it's in such a prime location. If she hadn't sold it to the right people, who then sold it to someone else that wanted us to remain here? You know, so we've been very fortunate in that. There's one gay bar lost their lease in the middle of the pandemic, you know, um, plus the bar next to it that a lot of people used to go to. Another gay bar lost their lease that way three blocks. <laughs> they lost their lease in the middle of the pandemic. They just didn't renew the lease. They're going to sell the building. Sell the building, make a fortune off of it. That's what they care about. So we've been extremely lucky. They're incredibly grateful for everything Briar did for the Wild Rose. And thus, for the lesbian community in Seattle. I have the utmost respect yeah, and absolutely. love for Briar. She's just a very good person. Yeah. Was very influential in the gay community, you know, of Seattle. You know, the, the community was fairly small then. And um, she took a big chance. All of them did. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. 
Follow us along on our road trip and see pictures at our website, cruisingpod.com, or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. Special thanks this week to Briar, Lamar, Martha, and Shelly. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, 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 oh,